Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang damang sankhang namasami A day or two ago, someone um, asked whether um, we could speak a little bit about monasticism and uh, monastic life and um, what that is all about and uh, about our uh, monastery here in the United States and so um, I thought that might be a, a useful topic since um, probably uh, many of you are not very familiar with these kind of creatures strange uh, Venusians like we've come out of a Hollywood B-movie <laughs> you know, the, the door of the spaceship opens So uh, it's it's interesting how m- many times people ask the question, um, you know, uh, were you born in a Buddhist family, or um, they uh, somehow you get the impression that they, they that people think that you came out of the pod like this, <laughs> and you know. Even though I have this sort of English public s- public school accent, well, no, you call a pri- um, what do you call them? Private schools. So, um, and uh, that um, somehow you know, people meet this this kind of form and think that this you're, you're kind of cloned this way, and. Um, and also, the, um, there's a, a quality of, of uncertainty about, you know, what it, what is monasticism? What does it mean? Why? And particularly here in the United States, where um, the uh, the Catholic Christian uh, tradition has not been particularly strong, as uh, America was founded very much by the um, um, uh, Protestant movement out of Europe and the Catholic influence that kind of came later, either through the Spanish people or the, through the Irish, and, and um, certainly is not a well-established tradition here of, of many centuries, as as there is in in Europe. So, um, for many people, you know, uh, the only monastics they've ever met is, um, are, you know, either these kind of vicious nuns that. Uh, <laughs> Wrap their knuckles in in uh, Catholic school, or um, what was it, Audrey Hepburn in the Nun story? Was it Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, in the movies, and that's the sort of uh, and and maybe um, heard of Thomas Merton or, or read some books by him, but that's um, 
that's about all. And so that one's sense of, uh, of the whole concept of monasticism is, is very remote. And even in Europe, especially in, in Britain, where Christianity is a very, very weak presence. And, and again, Catholicism hasn't had any force for many centuries. Um, you, you don't meet um, monastics, you know, um, I don't think I'd ever spoken to a, a, a Christian monk or, or nun until I was already living in a Buddhist monastery. So, you know, we wonder, what, what is this um, about? And uh, why bother? You know, what, what's the, the point of um, this kind of lifestyle, this kind of commitment? What is it and how does it work? Also, another another thing that um, uh, another assumption that that often comes across when when people talk to us is that people think that you actually want you actually want to be a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun. This is a kind of, like it's a sort of career move. <laughs> you know that you, you kind of um, you 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 got a a kind of went through the list of. Um, Of options in in uh, surveying your your kind of job opportunities and and you uh, you didn't make it to the top of the list of you know the 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 one most likely to and uh, or maybe you're a bit of a costume freak and <laughs> and uh, and then you you you, know, you kind of end up like this but. It's, it's an interesting thing that within our community, almost, I don't know anyone in our community who ever wanted to be a Buddhist nun or a Buddhist monk. That, you know, as a kind of an idea, oh, wouldn't it be marvelous to be a, a Buddhist nun? Wouldn't it be lovely to be a Buddhist monk? That, that there isn't one, I don't know anybody in our community who had the kind of, the, um, the, uh, that kind of, um, Approach, and the um, for for pretty much all of us, um, the the reason why we have have found ourselves uh, living in this way, attracted to this kind of style of life and, and kind of practice, is um, is very very pra- it's very pragmatic. It's not an idealistic thing at all. The idealists last we, we usually slightly more than three weeks, but <laughs> the, the, those who arrive in the monastery saying, I've, I've decided I'm going to be a Buddhist monk for the rest of my life. You say, okay, what, Friday maybe? <laughs> Could make it till June, but you know, because uh, it, it, it's, a, um, it's a kind of rude awakening the, between the idea and the fact there falls a shadow. Uh, for uh, for myself, um, I I disliked intensely a any kind of institution and b particularly institutional religion. Um, as uh, when I was growing up um, through my teens. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was born in 1956, so 
um, and and I was very uh, interested in the the whole flower power thing that was happening. I was far too young to get involved, but I think on my my thirteenth birthday, someone gave me a copy of the um, soundtrack to the musical Hair, and uh, that was it. I knew, I knew where I belonged. I'd found my my tribe, and so I just sort of waited patiently, kind of to get uh, to get large enough to get to get out there and get into it. Um, and so my own ethic was very much the kind of hippie anarchist: do whatever you want, as long as you don't hurt anybody, um, and let all the institutions fall apart, and the, you know the sooner the better. Uh, so. I was never a kind of bomb-throwing anarchist, but a definitely anti-establishment. No institutions, no rules, no boundaries, um, and a freedom fanatic. And um, tried to live in that way, in my, in uh, as the best I could. Uh, and uh, I went through a, a university degree in in London in uh, psychology and physiology. I did a joint a joint major and um, managed to stay within that institution just uh, just about enough to get through the degree. Um, but then as soon as that was finished, then uh, I kind of cut myself loose. And um, during this time, I had uh, got more and more interested in, in spiritual teachings um, because I was very taken and, and obsessed with the idea of freedom and how to find that. And even though I hadn't put two and two together, my, I began to experience the fact that the more free I tried to be in my behavior, um, uh, the worse I felt. You know, the more I was trying to be uninhibited and just do whatever I felt like doing, um, uh, the more wretched I became. I didn't put these two things together. You know, this, I could see I was getting more wretched and I was drinking a lot more. Uh, and I could and I, I could see I was making efforts to be free and uninhibited, but I didn't see the connection between the two for a long time. So um, at first I was, you know, very, as I was saying, you know, very into this uh, sort of free living ph- philosophy and very much a kind of uh, psychedelic aficionado. I, I used to to to, uh, to like drinking and uh, dancing and such like. Uh, a great deal too, and I, I, w- I had uh, plans. I was hatching plans to to revive the uh, Dionysian <laughs> cult. <laughs> I thought women, women, booze, and dancing under the moon all night to wild music. Yeah, that's that's what I call religion. <laughs> And uh, you know, of course, all spiced with considerable amounts of psychedelics to make it kind of really spiritual. And um, so uh, that's what I was working on. But then I found that the uh, the t- uh, I was really unconscious of it. But the the last year I was in university, the last year I was in England, I found that uh, uh, I was drinking more and more, and that my sort of sense of Emotional stability and integrity was kind of getting more and more shattered, and and uh, whereas before I'd always 
uh, I was kind of partied and and drunk to uh, to be liberated, to be free, to to uh, be totally alive. I found that I was starting to to drink to not exist, just to to um, disappear, to uh, to forget, as the French say. And um, so. Uh, I, I could see this was a problem. I was, I was uh, kind of seriously drunk, probably four or five nights a week. By the time I, uh, I, um, I left England, I saw at this time this was not the path to happiness. That something was wrong, and that I had also been involved with spiritual teachings. The teacher I hooked up with was a, a kind of renegade philosopher from the Rudolf Steiner tradition man called Trevor Ravenscroft and he had greatly encouraged me towards spiritual development and um, he was a kind of freewheeling um, character not really affiliated with any organization but he was very intuitive had a lot of, of very kind of profound intuitive insights and was very, was a great friend and very helpful and so um, he was encouraging me towards to, towards spiritual development and so I realized that the track that I was going on was, was um, definitely not going not um, uh, to do me very much good and probably wouldn't last very long. And I would end up in a box. So I decided, okay, I have, to, I have to get away from the situation I'm in. I have to leave England, go east, go to Asia, stop drinking. And uh, and also decided to become a vegetarian at the same time, and um, get away from the environment that I'd kind of immersed myself in. Um, simply to to find some kind of spiritual direction, some sort of spiritual teaching. Um, I knew I wanted to learn how to meditate. I knew I wanted to practice to to learn yoga and such like. But within the the situation I'd been living, I was always um, too much taken up with the next party, so I never never quite got round to it. Even though I had friends who were kind of into the into meditation and such like, and I'd even been along to a weekend of Buddhist teachings in London with a, a very high Tibetan Lama, but I was uh, under um, chemical influence at the time, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have a chance to sink in too deeply. Though uh, later on, the people in the Tibetan tradition say, "Oh wow, you were there with Dujon Rinpoche. That was amazing. How marvelous! What great good fortune!" I thought, "Well, if only I'd been there, it would <laughs> it would have been worthwhile." But I thought, you know, if I if it's a really kind of a significant spiritual event, you know, the more stoned you are for it, the better. So it didn't quite work that way. And I, even though I'd heard all these Buddhist teachings, they'd just gone straight over my head and, and I had nothing had stuck at all. So um, when I went to Asia, it was on a very much, um, a very open-ended, non-specific spiritual quest. And, and I, by this time, I'd never actually read a Buddhist book. I'd been along to these teachings that they hadn't impressed me at all. And, um, and I got this impression that of all the world religions, Buddhism was the most fusty um, decrepit, um, worn out, kind of ritualistic, and uh, dead, and definitely not worth bothering with. So uh, I had had no interest in Buddhism whatsoever. And um, 
when I when I was uh, thinking of going to Asia and finding a, a teacher, I imagined I would run into some kind of Balinese shaman, you know, and and uh, would become the, become a sorcerer's apprentice or or some kind of wizened old uh, sadhu under a, a tree in India who would you know, look out from behind his haze of chillum smoke and say, you've come. <laughs> <laughs> what took you so long? Or something like that. And um, But definitely the idea of organized religion was, was far, far, far out of, out of my mind and definitely um, no interest in Buddhism at all. I don't know where I got this impression from, but it was certainly I got this idea that um, that uh, the uh, there was nothing worth looking for in the, in the Buddhist world. So um, I had a I left England um, on a one-way ticket. Actually, I didn't have a ticket at all. I, I worked on a cargo flight with. A, a, I grew up riding horses, as I was saying. I said before and. I had this friend who had a business flying racehorses around the world, and so I worked as a groom on one of his flights, and, and took, went out with 22 racehorses to Malaysia. It's true. It's how I went east. <laughs> the journey to the east with 22 horses. And so um, then I was wandering around there in, in, in Southeast Asia, for some time through Indonesia and Malaysia, Singapore, and then finally um, hitchhiked up into Thailand. And my time in Thailand was really, um, I, would, I thought I would just hang out there and sit on, stay on the beach for a while and then uh, before going off to J Japan to teach English and make some more money so I could go traveling and continue my spiritual search. Um, but uh, I, um, by this time I was, um, I'd stopped drinking because I, I, you know, I knew that alcohol was not the way, but I still had great faith in psychedelics, and I still hadn't put the connection between the, the confusion and and consistent neurotic um, uh, anxieties and the consumption of <laughs> of uh, chemicals. Um, but I could see that you know that I was still getting stuck in this the the, um, the same kind of lifestyle that I'd had in England, really, just hanging out with um, uh, other kind of young um, freewheeling types, hanging out on beaches, sitting in cafes, discussing the nature of the universe, and and um, getting ripped. And I could see this is not this is still not going to do me any good. So I thought, I, here I am, I've come to Asia, I'm on my spiritual quest, and all I'm doing is, you know, the, the pub has changed into a, you know, a, a grass-roofed cafe, but uh, it's still the same people, it's still the same mindset. So then I heard about the northeast of Thailand, and where they said there's no tourists ever go there, and the, the, most people in Thailand think the place is filled with thieves and communists, and, but actually the people there are the most wonderful people in the world, very down-to-earth, very loving, um, very hospitable, and the finest people you'll ever meet. And there's no Europeans there. <laughs> so I thought, okay. So I went up there and through various circumstances found myself um, visiting a, a monastery. 
uh, and this was the, the the monastery of Western monks with uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, and uh, really just as a place to stay, because the, the 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 house where I'd showed up, I couldn't stay there for more than a night, and so they said, well, maybe you'd like to go and visit these Western monks in this monastery, and at the mention of this uh, monastery, this image came up in my mind of this sort of prune-faced, you know, ascetic with with uh, you know, thick black-rimmed glasses. And, uh, and I thought, well, okay, maybe for a day or two. <laughs> I'll give it a try. And um, so uh, I, I showed up there. And um, you know, by this time, I had very kind of uh, a sort of clear sense of... of um, knowing I needed to do something very, very serious about my mind. And I knew I needed to learn how to meditate. And I knew that, that I was very easily influenced by the environments that I lived in. And that, um, yeah, and where, where we are affects us very deeply. So I knew that uh, it would really help me to be in an environment that encouraged spiritual practice. So it just wasn't going to happen on the beach. I finally realized that. I'm kind of slow to learn, <laughs> but um, so rather than this sort of this um, prune-faced ascetic with the with, the, with the, the thick glasses, instead there was um, this uh, very large American monk who was um, some of you might know Joseph Capel, who now lives here in Boston. He was the abbot at that time. He was a a um, very big uh, extremely easy going, friendly, and regular guy. And um, we just sat down on a on a grass mat outside the um, the meeting hall, and just chatted. And I thought, well, this guy's all right. He's totally normal. He's almost normal. <laughs> and um, and he was very welcoming, very friendly, very very much at ease. And um, So their initial impression was was very striking, and then as as talking with him and then the other the other monks and novices who were there, you know, over the next day or so, I became more and more uh, impressed and uh, and amazed at uh, at their life. I mean, the, one of the first things was, you know, there was when you when you meet someone who's kind of heavily involved in something like this, you you assume they're going to try and uh, you know convince you that they're that that they're doing the right thing, or that their their way is the best way, or, or you know, if you look like this, you must be you must be a fanatic. And what really impressed me was these guys were not fanatics; they were really into what they were doing, but they weren't they weren't ramming it down your throat. They they like this is the way they like to live, and if you want to come here and join in, you can do so. But if you want to go on your way, you can do that. It's up to you. And another of the most impressive things was that they didn't want anything from you. Like all the kind of um, courses and and teachings and things I've been along to before, you know, it was always that pay your money at the door and then you get the then you get the goods. And here, you know, I kept waiting for the catch, like you know, how much does this cost? And I, find I was very very poor. I was travelling on on a very thin shoestring. 
and to my amazement, there was. Um, I said, so "Well, you know, how much kind of you know does it cost to stay here?" And they can look. So oh, it doesn't cost anything. No, just stay here as long as you want. When you don't have to, don't have to pay a penny. So if you live here, you, you you are part of the community. You can't just be here as an observer. That's impossible. If you're here, you're part of the monastery. So you participate in everything, you follow the routine, you keep the rules, but no, you know, nothing is asked of you. And there was a strange feeling, like my, my brain was trying to find a place for such a concept. <laughs> like, they don't want anything from me, they don't want to convince me that they're right, they don't want any money off me, they, they invite me in and I can live here for the rest of my life if I want to, but they don't, they don't particularly want me to, or they don't not want me to. And it was like, I haven't got a hole for this. <laughs> what, do you, what do you call this? You know, Because you never met such a thing. And, that, and also this way of being incredibly committed. I mean, uh, I was telling you the other day when, when Ajahn Prabhakaro told me that they, I said, well, what's the routine? And he said, well, we, we get up at three. I thought they had like a six-hour clock. <laughs> You know, they had some kind of special time system. They must have some sort of sundial or a, a different, hour, you know, numbering system. Because no, you couldn't mean three o'clock, I mean, real three o'clock. That's, that's totally crazy. You know, no one does. I mean, three o'clock's a late night, right? You know, it's not when the day begins. It's when you're kind of winding down. And... Uh, but you know, these guys, like, they had no sex, no supper, only one meal a day. <laughs> they eat at half past eight in the morning, and no, uh, no music, uh, no singing, no dancing, no drink, no drugs, uh, no radio, no TV. Um, they live in, in these little huts in the forest, just no bed, just sleeping on a thin grass mat on, on the bare boards. And, um, and they're not being paid for it either. <laughs> and yet these guys had been there for like five, uh, ten years. Uh, and what really amazed me was that these were the happiest people I'd ever met. Now, and for the first time in my life, I realized these people know something that I don't. And it's not something that I'm ever going to get out of a book. Uh, oh, this is this is a this is something special. And so I'm, I'm just recounting how I experienced it myself. Obviously, it was not the same for everybody, but uh, this was extremely impressive to me. And then another element that came in to view very quickly was the next morning. Uh, they said, well, if you want to come out on the arms round, you can come along. And I thought, you know, like most of you, arms round, huh? You know, I knew that in the school I went to, there were these old arms houses where we would be turned into the art room. I still didn't know what an arms house was in those days, you know. Uh, arms round. I thought, what on earth is that? They said, well, just, you know, after the morning chanting, just follow us. I thought, okay, right. Yeah. So we'd have the morning, and sure enough, yeah, the morning chanting was, we, the, bell, the morning bell went at three and they met at four. After the morning chanting and meditation, um, 
then I just sort of tagged along behind this line of monks went off into the village. And um, so uh, I'm just walking along and chatting with some of the the, um, the novices. And, and we get to the edge of the village and the monks kind of arrange all their, their, their bowls and uh, their robes and then walk in this kind of very a neat line about uh, one and a half meters between each one. Your eyes looking down at the ground and me sort of following along behind this kind of scruffy hippie. Um, you know, I was I literally was straight off the beach. I still had sand in my hair. I had this kind of bush of curly hair and, and a seashell in my earring. And, and um, so I was kind of following along behind and uh, thinking, this is really cool. And then, then what happened was that we kind of entered into this kind of extraordinarily sort of timeless ritual. And they walked into the village, and then you know, the, and then there's this this woman and 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 her daughter kneeling on the ground with these little baskets of rice, and then kind of put some rice into the, each of the monks' bowls, and and then and then as I walked past, you know, they kept their hands, you know, it's called Anjali. I thought, oh. <laughs> that's amazing and then next house the same thing Another, uh, you know, a, a man and a woman came out and, and uh, put rice into, the, into the, the bowls of each of the monks and then all the way through the village this, this happened, different houses and the monks kind of wove this way and that way around the village streets and through these beautiful little uh, wooden houses on, on stilts and, and bamboo and um, banana trees around and it was a cold season so here and there there'd be these little fires people sort of squatted around these little fires of of um of uh, of wood and, and leaves from from the um the palm trees and such like it's kind of little wisps of smoke weaving up uh through the buildings and uh and i i was thinking this is amazing this must be some kind of fantastic, you know, sacred annual ritual. And I came on the right day. What a miracle. You know, they must take them weeks to arrange this thing. You know, and I, and I just happened to come in, you know, at the right moment. Uh, what, what fortune, because it was like this amazing sort of magical interchange between, you know, the villagers kind of coming out and, and offering food to the, to the, the monks. And... Uh, as, as they came out of the village and, and um, the monks kind of handed their bowls over and I went up to Ajahn Pabakro and said, that's amazing, you know, what an incredible thing. Is this, and you know, alluding to the fact that this is obviously some, some really kind of sacred you know, uh, uh, festival day. And he says, oh no, we, we do this every day. We've been doing it every day for the last two and a half thousand years. <laughs> and again, something kind of went very, very quiet. Like, oh. He says, oh yeah, this has happened, this has been happening since the time of the Buddha. You know, the same bowls, the same robes, walking barefoot through the village. And people who have uh, faith in the monastery and the, the Buddhist way of life offer a little pinch of rice to help, help you on your way. And that's how the monastery feeds itself. That's how we gather our food. That's how we live. That's how the order has lived for two and a half thousand years. And this, you could see this kind of vast uh, kind of landscape opening up. Um, 
of uh, not just this little collection of, of sort of Western refugees from the from the um, the hippie communes of, of America and Europe, because also you know the people in the monastery these were not the sort of you know prune-faced scholarly um, kind of uh, religious fanatics. But these were all you know, it became very apparent within the first couple of days that these guys went to the same rock festivals, went to the same universities, did the same drugs read the same novels, and um, I was even even drank in the same pubs as some of them. <laughs> but we were all from the, the same kind of background, and yet and yet, this was, suddenly, it was not just this collection of, of nice guys living in this forest, but it was this, this um, a kind of relationship, not only with the, the greater world around them, and the, the lay community, the villages nearby, but this, this stretching, out through this vast reaches of time, and uh, and then as the days went by, I saw that there was this profound and strong relationship between the the, the village and the people of the town and the monastery, and and that far from the monastery being the kind of the enclosure where the the um, the monastics lived, um, it was everybody's place. It, it was a it was a kind of meeting place and a spiritual oasis for everybody. The the monks and novices, you know, and the the guests lived there. But it was a free space. The the the, the meditation hall was always open. The shrine room was always open. And um, anybody from the town or the village who wanted to come there and spend time there and talk to the talk to the monks or to just to be in the a quiet of the forest and meditate. It was their space. And that there was this kind of beautiful symbiotic relationship of of um that those people living in the monastery through their own effort and energy and commitment were sustained this atmosphere of, of restraint and and uh, mindfulness. And then the the greater community around uh, supported that with their with their offerings of, of what they could of you know a handful of rice here a grass mat there um, helping to build a hut um, digging a well clearing some paths whatever they could do and through hundreds and hundreds of people all helping a little bit then suddenly you know you, out of this you had this um, a beautiful spiritual center. So to my amazement, within a, within a, a very few days of being there, I I got this feeling of I think I'm going to be here a long time. And meanwhile, my thinking mind was saying, I hate institutional religion. <laughs> I'm not. I am not. I'm one of not, not one of those people who likes institutional religion. The actuality of what I met there was something incredibly uh, beautiful and and effective. And then the explanation of the meditation practice was um, was also extremely helpful insofar as along with my my um, obsession with freedom had also be- there been my um, uh, continuing ongoing puzzlement about desire and because you know, then I experienced many desires, it's like everybody, and I never knew quite what to do with it. If I was being spiritual, I felt I shouldn't have any desires. 
and then and then if you followed your desires, you obviously weren't being spiritual. And so there seemed to be like the two options were either follow your desires and and do whatever you feel like doing, but then that generally left you disappointed and and uh, and wretched eventually, or else you squash your desires and you just feel frustrated. So well, you either get frustration or disappointment. Um, and just having an even measure of the two didn't seem to be the kind of ideal way to live your life, but it seemed to be what most of us were doing. And so for years I'd be trying to figure this out. What do you do with desire? You know, when you when you when you want something. I mean, I was quite a frugal person and, and quite, um, uh, you know, I, I liked simplicity and I, and I was and harmlessness and so on, but. Um, you know that, that feeling of desire was always there, of different sorts—sexual desire or desire for uh, you know, ambition and um, desire to go places or get things. It was always kind of around, and never had any sense of how to work with it or what to do with it. So then, the the instruction on on meditation and how the Buddha's teaching hinges on exactly that. You know, this was a another kind of amazing revelation that uh, and it was actually one of the one of the novices who'd only been there two or three months who kind of who was uh, giving me the instruction he said oh well when, when you when you desire something you know like you when you when a desire arises what you, all you have to do is to just observe it as a desire and and watch it and not act on it and then it'll go away because everything's impermanent I thought, oh, ha, 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 yeah. Yeah. Pull the other one, it's got bells on, you know. It's, um, and uh, so anyway, when I, when I was living on the beach, I used, to li- I used to pretty much live on pineapple. And uh, sticks of pineapple. And so uh, when I, um, I was sitting in the meditation that evening, and it's kind of hot and sticky and being eaten by mosquitoes, and... And then this thought arose, I'd really like a pineapple stick. Yeah, and, uh, and I thought, aha, this is a desire. Okay, right. Now what was I supposed to do with this? <laughs> oh yes, he said, just observe the desire. You don't push it away and don't, don't follow it, but just watch the desire passing through your mind. And so I did. And, and uh, okay, here we are. Here's me wanting uh, you know, a stick of pineapple. Okay. And then, you know, my mind was so busy that pretty soon that had gone. I think, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> now no, it's gone. <laughs> the desire's gone. I didn't get the pineapple. And nothing is missing. Oh. Oh, look at that. Because when a desire arises, it always says, you know, if you, it always tells you, you're not complete if you don't get this thing, you know, whatever it is. And um, suddenly, this thing, this kind of pathway appeared before me, like, oh, this is how you do it. It's that simple. And that, again, I felt that, that sensation of being simultaneously um, embarrassed and, in, and thoroughly relieved. Like, yeah, how did I miss that? I've been trying to figure this out for years. How did I miss that? It's so obvious when you see it. 
So these were some of the, the elements of, of a monastic life that um, really attracted me. Also the qualities of harmlessness, you know, that the, they had such a, a standard of, of harmlessness and, and honesty. I knew I needed to stop being so deceitful and and uh, and uh, it was it was clear that the that you know even and this was this was a particular quality of Ajahn Chah and, and his his students was that even though they were totally committed to living the monastic life and 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 keeping the rules and doing everything properly. Uh, they weren't fixated upon that, or they saw that this is just a convention that you pick a, a kind of role that you pick up, and it and it has a, it's a tool that you use for a purpose. It's not an identity, and that you actually be really uh, encouraged. Like, don't pick up monastic life as a, as an identity. No one is here to be to kind of be a monk, to be a nun. That's not what we're here for. To take that on as an identity, it's a uh, and a, a monastery, monastic life is is an environment. It's not a. It's not an identity. And uh, right from the very beginning, you're kind of warned against that. Or so don't don't do that. Don't do this. And that uh, this is actually just a, a doorway. And so, what what really tickled me was I had this. My I had a couple of profound insights during this first week or so. That I was in the monastery, and uh, one was that you know, a Buddhist monk is just a space cadet with a license. <laughs> that you know, you that you that your realm was just the same as the kind of um, psychedelic realm of exploring an inner space, but you know, you had this, with this kind of protection of of honesty and uh, and nonviolence and. Um, kindness, the kind of the the, the quality of, of morality, virtue, and kindness, was this. You know, this was your your kind of container, so that you knew no one was going to rip you off, no one was going to try and seduce you, no one was was going to um, hurt you, um, and that uh, you were in this kind of um, zone of uh, of, of perfect. Um, protection, so that you could explore the free space without, uh, and it was legal. You know, not only legal, the 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 establishment, you know, saluted you. So this was the other thing that was re- I, that I found hilariously funny was that was that uh, that actually even though this looked like the most kind of stiff and orthodox way of life, like, and our our tradition is the kind of austere end of an orthodox tradition. You know, we're way off, you know, at the end of the spectrum. But somehow, you know, like um, the uh, like when when a circle completes itself, it's like you know, it's so it's so establishment, and it's got so many rules, and it's so kind of ancient and hierarchical. But yet, because of this element of of, of transcendence and the fact that you know you that it is just a form. In order to realize that which is beyond form, it's a convention to realize that which is beyond convention. As I had this sudden realization: oh, this is the perfection of anarchy. This is this is how the anarchist really lives, because like the, 
the philosophy uh, of anarchy is to to not be subject to any outside law, not to be subject to any any law imposition from outside. And of course, um, if your if your heart is totally free, if you're completely enlightened, then you you don't uh, you don't follow any outside law. You follow the law of the Dhamma which inclines you towards kindness, honesty, harmlessness, frugality, <laughs> harmony, so that you know, the, the perfection of, of, uh, of freedom, of not being bound by any kind of external um, force or person or form, um, inclines you towards living extremely harmoniously and modestly and, and easily uh, with all other beings. So uh, this this struck me as hilarious. <laughs> How you know, on the one hand, there was this apparent um, structure and form, and yet, yet when that was taken to its fulfilment, when it was really used in the right way, it led to this uh, the fulfilment of this seemingly completely opposite um, kind of anti-establishment. Um, Outlook. So that the way that uh, a monastery works is that is, is from the individual commitment of the people who are there, and it's in this. I mean, I've been using personal examples just to make it a bit more kind of tangible. But it's what all a monastery is doing is taking those very qualities of our own being our own spiritual qualities, and through the, the, the communal commitment to cultivating those qualities, we support each other. And you can see that by living with other people, just the, the, how many hours of meditation do we do a day? And how many of us could sustain this if we weren't on a retreat together? Even if we had that free time in our own homes? Yeah, put your hands up, you know. It's <laughs> It's, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But yet with the communal commitment to a standard of, of, um, of unselfishness, of, uh, of restraint, of kindness, of, of wisdom, of compassion, then that, that encourages that in everyone who's both living there and then all those who come to visit. And that people come to that place to help those qualities be, be developed within them. And, uh, and so the, the relationship then that, uh, that occurs between the, the, say, the monastic community and the lay community is a very, very free exchange. So anyone who comes and stays in the monastery, even for a day, they're kind of, you're a monastic for that day. Everyone you know, keeps that, that rule. So you participate and you contribute to that environment, even for that day, that moment. Or if it's for a week or a month or a year or ten years, um, that you're free to come and to participate and to contribute to that environment. And when, it's, when you want to leave or you need to leave or it no longer is meaningful to you, then you're free to go. Because within, within this tradition, the way the Buddha established it was that you know, people are free to leave at any time. The ordination procedure is quite complicated, but the, the disrobing procedure is very, very simple. In fact, all, according to the, the rule, all you have to do is to tell a person 
who can understand the sense of your own words um, that you renounce the, the monastic training. Say, I, I give up. I, I give up the life of the, of the Buddhist nun. I, I renounce the monk's rule, something like that. And even there is a provision, if there's nobody else around, if you're off in the wilds and you've, you've had it, <laughs> you've, you know, the end of the rope has been reached, you can just shout. <laughs> I give up! And then that, that's considered legitimate uh, um, procedure. The Buddha was extremely practical. <laughs> he really understood human nature very, very well. Now, it's also um, the element of, of, um, of my monastic life, like any system, it only works when your heart's in it. And, and it, is, it is a form, and it has lots of, of ritual and custom and tradition to it. But it only works when you, you remember that, that. I mean, it works best when you remember that that is just a form. And so that what you're doing with monastic life is the same as what you're doing on a retreat here, is that you, you enter into a, a relationship. You enter into a relationship with the other retreatants, with the, with the staff of, of IMS, with the, the people who are teaching. So you, you're, you're consciously entering into a, a relationship on the basis that that relationship will benefit you and um, primarily and will benefit others uh, as well. And so then the, 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 the aim is for that relationship to be something which helps to liberate us rather than bind us. Um, so it is obviously possible to enter into a, a monastic training and, and make it into a, a big headache for yourself and other people that you get very taken up with all keeping all the rules or, or not keeping the rules or you get very obsessed with the teacher and then you love the teacher and then you hate the teacher and, and uh, or that you, you get very taken up with the idea of, of becoming a monk or a nun and you're desperate to get in and then you, you're, you're in and then you're desperate to get out and, <laughs> and then you want to come back in again when uh, Ajahn Chah came here to the, the States in 1979, he was, um, for a while, uh, he and, and uh, Ajahn Pabakro, that was the, the monk that I first met, they went up to Pabakro's family cabin in, in near Seattle. And it was just by this river out near Stephen, a place called Stevens Pass. And they had this dog. Yes, I think it was a, a golden retriever. And uh, pet dogs were a big rarity in Thailand at that time. So Ajahn Chah wasn't used to seeing dogs around the, the house. They're kind of like one level above the rat, socially. <laughs> so he was kind of interested that the, sort of the dog was around the house and part of the family in the first place. And then uh, they were out at this cabin. And, um, and uh, I, I, I love Joseph Kappel very much, um, who was Ajahn Pabakra. We're very close buddies, so he won't mind me saying this. But um, he, uh, they were sitting in the cabin together and the dog would scratch on the door to be let out. And then they'd open the door and the dog would go out and then a couple of minutes later, scratch, scratch, scratch. <laughs> Wanted to come back in again. And then a few minutes later, scratch, scratch. Wants to be let out. And Ajahn Chah thought this was hilarious because uh, Ajahn Pabakra was also kind of had difficulties with... Uh, staying in the monastic life. He was always kind of 
<laughs> thinking about moving on. And so he says, Pavakro, you see the dog? You, do you, does this look familiar? You know? See, once he gets out, he wants to come back in again, you know. Then once he's back in, he wants to get out again. He says, so, yeah, this, this happens a lot in this kind of in monastic life. There's a lot of, of, of identification with the form, wanting to get into it, wanting to get out of it. Making the form, you know, a solid reality that they, we then kind of long for or, or, or push against. Um, and the same with the, with the lay community, you know, like you, the, the, relating to the, the, the monastics as um, you know, somehow different and, or other. And um, so the, it's, it's helpful to kind of understand the quality of a relationship and how re- you know, the relationship works. And I like to think about, consider this, in, there's, there's two kinds of, basically there's two kinds of relationship. One of which uh, I call a relationship of separateness, and the other which I call a relationship of wholeness. <coughs> and um, a relationship of separateness is where, where you know, I see myself as a you know a separate entity, and I see you as a separate entity. And whether you know it's a parent-child, um, partner to partner, um, teacher to student. Um, relationship or whatever um, it is it's the same kind of dynamic works and in a relationship of separateness then we are uh, uh, we see each other as, as distinct beings like there is a teacher out there or here is my my sister over here or whatever and so that then we try to establish harmony or closeness just by bringing those two um, kind of separate entities kind of closer together and make agreements between them, but because of the the quality of identification, there's always this kind of gap, and that uh, the relationship then starts to um, depend around what what you do f- to make me feel whole. You know, I need you around to make me be complete, and you need me around to make you feel complete, and that um, and so that there's a, a kind of um, there's this quality of, even though there's closeness, there's also alienation and uh, a kind of dependency that, that occurs. That you know, I feel this bit missing in me and so I'm ex- I, 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 uh, I look upon you to fill that. And then when the p- other person can't do that, then you, you either feel like you're failing or they're failing. Um, and no matter how hard we work it, as long as there's a concrete me and a concrete you, you know, all the maneuvers that we make, there's still, there's this kind of um, gulf there. You ever see that, that painting of, uh, by René Magritte called The Lovers? There's two people, each have got a black bag over their head. They're kind of embracing. And there's this kind of, each one's in their own bag. So this is the kind of epitome of... Uh, of a relationship of, of separateness. So a relationship of wholeness is where um, in relationship with another person, with a, with a, between a, a student and a teacher, between partners or between parents and children or, or whatever it might be, it's where um, the, the relationship 
helps us to to recognize our own wholeness, but the other um, helps us to recognize our own completeness, our own fullness, and that it's a, a love and a relationship that's not based on possessiveness uh, or on the feeling of of identity, but it's based is a love that's based on generosity, upon upon selflessness, uh, and not upon neediness. So if someone comes to a monastery and looks at the to a teacher, it's like you are, you know, you are my savior, and and I need you to teach me, and and you have to be there as my example, and uh, and and look uh, for me to look up to, and for you, you know, you, your job is to guide me and to look after me and to to be my and uh, to be perfect for me. Then um, you're always going to be uh, creating difficulty and and suffering. And but the, if a teacher knows what they're doing, then they will always kind of push that away and say. And like Ajahn Chah was, was and Ajahn Sumedho were both very accomplished at doing this. As soon as they feel someone sort of uh, relating to them in that way, then they'll instantly do something which is very disappointing, <laughs> or something which which precisely conflicts with the image the person's trying to create. Of um, kind of belch loudly or <laughs> give an extremely long and boring Dharma talk. <laughs> Ajahn Chah had an incredible repertoire of, of ways to upset people. <laughs> but, uh, one time, the wife of the American ambassador came to visit Wat Bapong, and he gave her this four-hour Dharma talk uh, <laughs> on. On, on the nature of suffering. <laughs> and, and Ajahn Sumedha was translating, and, he, and also Ajahn Chah just kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. And there's, this poor woman was sitting on a concrete floor, and she was, she was uh, overtly, she was a, a student of Buddhism, and he thought, okay, well, I'll give her a teaching. You know? And she was all kind of, you know, very, you know, kind of... Um, dewy-eyed and respectful and he really gave her the treatment and, and ha- halfway through the well, three quarters of the way through the talk he kind of stopped in mid-sentence and, and got up walked over the corner and, and urinated into a <laughs> into a pot like in f- <laughs> and it was there was no secret about what he was doing he had his back turned you know but uh, Ajahn Sumedha was like caving in completely he was, thought maybe I should make polite conversation and distract her but it was a so that you know a good teacher will, will kind of dismantle that but and because what what really works what is effective is uh, is where you know the our partner or our teacher or the or the uh, you know within a parent child relationship we 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 let go of that quality of of um, separateness of projection and the other helps us to uh, awaken to our own wholeness. So within a monastery, that kind of spiritual friendship, which is there between the, the, the nuns and the monks, the novices and the elders and the, 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 uh, the preceptors and, and so on, those who are, who are senior and junior, that you're always trying to establish this kind of rela- a relationship whereby you're not kind of bonding to each other in a possessive way or, uh, or in a way of... of um, um, kind of self-based neediness, 
but it's a um, being there for each other um, and being ready to to help each other and uh, appreciating the support that that is given by the group but but not um, placing your not placing yourself in a in a, a role of dependency so then we the within the within a spiritual community just like a, with a retreat like this it's you're, you're supporting each other you're buoying each other up and that's what sangha is it's like a sea that buoys us up um, now there, there's a very famous exchange that went on between the the buddha and ananda who was the, his attendant and ananda had uh, once again been having a, a discussion with another of the monks and and this, uh, the, this other monk had been saying that he thought that meditation was the most important thing, bhavana, meditation, this was the most important thing. And Ananda has this kind of character of being a sort of, you know, sweet, softy, kind of nice guy. He was, he was um, always a kind of conciliator and, and chummy. And, and so he also has the reputation of being a bit of an airhead. And, uh, but he has this very, very friendly nature. He was the great advocate for the nuns' order. He was the one that, that got the Buddha to, to ordain women, first of all, which didn't go down very well with some of the other monks. <laughs> but uh, that's why the, a nuns' order was brought about, was because of Ananda's compassion for the, for the women and his kindness. So anyway, this monk's saying, I think that you know, meditation is the most important thing. And Ananda is saying, well, I think that, that spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. And the, monk, the other monks say, "Ah, oh, rubbish! You, this is, yes, yeah, you're just the kind of, you just like human company too much." And uh, Ananda said, "No, no, it's really this is really important." And it's so anyway, they they go back and forth, and eventually, as they always do in these things, they say, "Well, let's take it to the master and see what he says." So then they go to the Buddha, and they say, uh, and Ananda says repeats the conversation and, and says, so I, my, my, my feeling is that spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, not so, Ananda. Say not so. Spiritual friendship, Kalyanamita, is not half of the holy life. It is the whole of the holy life. And so this is really the, the basis of, of like spiritual community, how monasteries work, and between those who live within the monastery and those who come to visit and stay there, those who are just pass by, or those who live at a distance and feel an affiliation or an affinity with a monastery, that it's based around this quality of spiritual friendship, because this is really the, the, bl- the lifeblood of, of um, spiritual practice, is that we need each other, and uh, our efforts um, uh, support each other. You know, it, it's uh, amazingly powerful. You come on a retreat and you know there's sort of 60, 70, 80 people that are there you know, doing the same work as you are. And when you kind of flag and, and wane and droop, then somehow the energy of everybody else kind of picks us up. And and I remember after I'd been in the monastery in Thailand for a few weeks, and, you know, my mind was kind of all over the place. And, and you know, you just try and keep your head off the floor during the morning sitting. And, you know, I thought I'd develop really great powers of concentration. I thought, wow, you know, that's... I've really got this meditation business down, you know, I just close my eyes in the morning sitting and... Shame they're so short. <laughs> you know, but I must be in some kind of deep state of samadhi because it goes by so fast and they... 
And then the the, the novice who's sitting next to says, I, "I made this quite I, you know, quite honestly. I made this comment." He said, "So I, I don't think it's samadhi you're in. You're, you know, your head's about three inches off the floor." You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was really disappointed. <laughs> but uh, and I remember getting really despondent though, and thinking, "God, this is terrible." Here I, I sit here, you know, and day after day, and all I've got is, you know painful knees and sexual fantasies and you know, just resenting the other monks and, and wanting this, that and the other, having, you know, fantasizing food and and just the kind of drivel of, of human consciousness and remembering old movies and re- replaying endless hours of music. <laughs> just, I had this enormous collection of, of records that was still with me. And even ones I didn't like, you know. <laughs> I can remember all my, my uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein's movies that my sisters had the soundtracks of when I was about three or four years old, and it'd be Oklahoma going, <laughs> South Pacific, you know. Oh God! <laughs> and just getting really thinking, what am I doing? Here I am. I'm, I'm eating the food of these, you know, these faithful people. They're coming. They're so generous. They're very poor and. And all I'm doing is just spending my entire day on greed, hatred, and delusion. So I kind of dragged myself to, to the Ajahn and said, oh, I'm, re- I'm really, this is terrible, you know, I feel so embarrassed, I feel like I'm a fraud, and, you know, my mind is a mess, and, 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 um, well, and he said, yeah, but look, look at it this way, you know, here you are, how many people on the planet even think about making the effort to, to even try to attenuate this stuff? And not even, hardly anybody even thinks about it. And at least you're making the effort. And, you know, you, you live here, you're keeping the rules, and you're doing your best to, to restrain these kind of negative tendencies. And, um, and this is just, just making the effort is greatly inspiring to people. They don't, they don't feed you because they think you're totally enlightened. You know, they know that your mind is full of, of fear and lust and, 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 and anger and, and uh, restlessness. Of course they know that. They're, they're human. They know that's what, the, what happens in the mind. But they're just, they, they, they want to help you and support you because they admire the fact that, that you want to work with it. And the very fact that you're here doing this is important to people all around the world. Now, not, just be, not just you, but the very fact that this monastery exists, just the same as the very fact that IMS exists. You know, you might, in exactly the same way, you might have sat here, you know, sharing the blessings at the end of the afternoon, or fat chance, you know. <laughs> you know, where have I been? You know, I spent, you know, three hours in Peru today. And, but yet, isn't it true that the very fact that IMS exists is of great significance to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world? And at the moment, you are IMS that this place exists because you come here, because you value this place, you put your time and energy into doing retreats. So this place exists. It has a place in society. And because it exists, then, then thousands and thousands of people all over the planet are encouraged. They know. There are people out there who are spending their time, their days, trying to cultivate goodness, let go of the unwholesome. What an amazing and wonderful thing. So the, you know, a monastery and a renunciant life is simply a kind of 
uh, long term or short term uh, commit it's like a formalization of the same inclination towards goodness it's a you know the robes and the shaven head are a way of of advocating simplicity and and kind of communality so we all look the same we're, we're learning to kind of lay aside personal differences and to to look more inwardly so you know we you don't worry about what your hair is like or whether you're losing it or whether it's going grey and even if you think that you don't think about it very much if you if you look closely you probably find that you do just a little bit I mean I have people coming up to me out of the blue justifying why they dye their hair <laughs> and yeah you sort of I stand there smiling like you don't have to expl- you don't have to justify it to me you know it's quite all right <laughs> but you know so the kind of renunciant format the formality of renunciation is like is is a kind of distinct reminder like I really don't care about my hair what I, my hair looks like I really don't care whether I've got wrinkles or not I really it's really not that important what clothes I wear you know just clothes to cover the body food to sustain life a shelter um, for privacy and to, to keep out the weather it's good enough that's it that's good enough that's all you need as a human being and some time and space to cultivate the path the, the, the gu- guidance in the Buddha's teaching and a, a safe environment an environment where you can trust everyone around you and that's all, and that's all the you know the all the kind of formalities and ritual and tradition of, of monastic life is for. It's just to to for simplicity and for helping to create a focus. And and so uh, it's it can look like it's something very different or alien. But actually, it's something that is it, 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 intimately familiar to everybody here. Because like this, this is a mon- I mean, this is a monastery. When Ajahn Chah came to IMS, he was really impressed. He said, to, he said to Jack at the time, well, um, you know, if I could just get the monks at Wat Bapong to sit as still as this, you know, I'd be really impressed. That's the name of his monastery. He says, the, these Americans, they really, they really like to meditate. I have to bring some of them to Thailand and teach the monks how to sit still. <laughs> and that, uh, and you know, you, you keep the monastic rule, and, and so this, the, a place like this is very, very much in the spirit of what a monastery is for, what it's about. So don't think it's something very different or or, or alien to what you're already co- totally committed to. And one one last point I'd like just like to make um, is that one of the the, 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 um, the teachings that I think is most helpful that uh, again this is another one of those painfully succinct statements by Ajahn Chah which is that um, when you enter upon spiritual practice you should expect to experience a great deal of friction and difficulty When you enter upon spiritual practice, you should expect to 
to experience a great deal of friction and difficulty. Now, oftentimes we think if we are experiencing friction and difficulty, we're doing something wrong. That if we're meditating, we should be kind of ah, <laughs> kind of floating, free. But that that's not the case. And they say, well, are these guys into pain? You know, do they want problems? But it's not. That's not the case. It's like if if what we really value is truth and and freedom, then what has to happen is that we have to meet all that which is binding us, which is fear, which is aversion, which is desire, which is self-obsession. And in meeting those, there is the experience of friction and difficulty, because we have to, to be with the thing that we're afraid of. We have to not follow the desire that we, we experience. We have to not get rid of that which we're averse to in order, as we know that. And so a a monastery environment is specifically designed, all of the escape hatches are closed. All of the escape routes for the mind's energy are closed. Um, uh, uh, So that we have to experience the compulsions and obsessions and, and that which binds us is met face on. So this can be a bit raw. So monks do a lot. Of, we do a lot of building work, <laughs> and we like to go. We like to go hiking. We do a lot of walking and a lot of building, um, which kind of lets off a bit of steam uh, in wholesome ways. But this is the monastery environment, just like a retreat environment. You're, you're kind of narrowing the focus so that we can meet the habits of a lifetime, so that we can know them and we can let go of them. So uh, this, I find, uh, it's a kind of raw truth, but it's extremely um, helpful. So don't think because you're not comfortable that you're doing it wrong, or the place is wrong, or the practice is wrong. That you know, and it's not about creating discomfort, but to know that when when we meet the the habits of mind, there is that that friction, but it's, it's like they have this expression um, that the Buddha used, this is the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. Like having the patience to work with a pain in your knee, having the patience to work with a painful memory, having the patience to not say something to the person that, that um, just took the last piece of cake, or that took the really nice, that wonderful blue and green bowl that you were going to do an ascetic practice with. (laughs) They got the bent fork. (laughs) You know, to that, the patience and, and and the resolution to stay with that, and to, that's, that's the work that liberates. That's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And so to not be, a the, the lot of the monastic training is like learning not to be afraid of that, not to pull away from that, not to just try and find comfort, but to, to, to be ready to meet that. And the, the, this is the, the means that we have of, of shaking off all the, the, the fetters and, and, and chains that, that bind us. And this is, this is not easy to do. 
This is because we spend a lifetime following our fears or following desires, getting away from things, getting rid of what we don't like. And uh, so it's 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 hard work, but it's w- uh, but it's also you know the work itself is not an imposition on our freedom. Life is work. And if we, if we kind of run on a basis of, I'm doing my meditation now, I'm doing my practice now so that, you know, won't it be nice when I don't have to bother, when I've kind of cracked it, when I've got enlightened, I can just kind of lean back and enjoy it. You know that feeling? Wouldn't it be nice not to have to bother? Go on, confess. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. But if, if, we, if we're waiting for the work to be finished, or we're looking at the work as an imposition, again, we've missed it. That life is work, but work can be joyful and, and, and also no, no um, obstruction to our, to our freedom. So to be ready to, to, to give our heart to that work, to, to, to have that patience to, to bear with difficulty, and then, then the, the door opens and uh, then uh, freedom is what we find. So I will leave it there, otherwise it will be time for morning chanting soon. (laughs) We can close with the uh, reflections on universal well-being. Such action 
companion to such action, and its results will be their own. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the end.